So I won't be here next week, but Mark Snowberger will, Dr. Mark Snowberger. And if you've ever had a chance to take anything from Mark Snowberger, then don't miss next week because he is terrific, absolutely terrific. So he's going to fill in. He's not going to continue this, although I gave him a general idea of where we were. But I said, teach really whatever you want. Just make it from the Old Testament, and you'll be in the ballpark. And he's going to do a standalone then lesson. But you'll benefit greatly from his his teaching. He taught a whole semester for us. Was it last semester uh, on dispensationalism? I know, Paul, you listened to pretty much all of those. Yeah. And they were terrific. Yeah, I just listened to them online since he was taking the class I was doing. Paul was. But uh, Mark's just great. So be here next week, and then we'll be together two weeks from today, Lord willing. We've been saying in the prior seven sessions together that the Bible is an intimidating book. It's intimidating because it's old, because it is big, and because it's diverse. But that intimidation can be minimized, if not completely eliminated, if we realize that the Bible is really about a handful of things. It's about three things, creation, fall, and redemption. And those three things are laid out in the first three chapters of the Bible. And then everything that follows from that falls under those headings of creation, fall, and redemption. So in creation, God is telling us who he is and what he expects from us. And I call that an orientation. God gives humanity an orientation to him and his world. And then the fall is the entrance of sin into God's world. And that is... uh, who we are and what our problem is. And I call that not orientation, but disorientation. Because of the entrance of sin, everything that was made to be in harmony now is in disharmony, now is distorted. And so we call that disorientation. So you've got creation, orientation, who God is, and what he expects from us. The fall, that's the entrance of sin into the world, who we are and what our problem is. And then, thankfully... If it's left at that, it's all bad news. But the good news is God's going to do something about it. And that's that third theme throughout the Bible, redemption. And redemption is what God's going to do about the problem of sin uh, or reorientation. God is reorienting his world to its original design. And God tells us how it is he's going to do that. In chapter 3 of the first book of the Bible, Genesis 3.15, God says the solution to this problem of sin is going to come through a human being, through the seed of the woman. And then in the fifth chapter of the Bible, it begins to focus in on the the line through whom this seed is is going to to come. Uh, Adam and Eve have children, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Seth replaces Abel. And the the Bible in chapter 5 of Genesis gives us a genealogy of the line of Seth. And one of the descendants of Seth is Noah. And you you know the story of Noah and, and the universal flood. And Noah was a descendant of Shem, but only eight persons survived the flood. Noah, his wife, has three sons and their wives. And one of those three sons who survive is, um, is, is uh, Shem. Uh, did I mix up Seth and Shem when I was talking? Okay, sometimes I do that. But anyway, Seth is the son of Adam and Eve. Genesis 5 follows uh, his line, and Noah is a Sethite, uh, a descendant of Seth. And then he has a son named Shem, and then the Bible follows Shem. And a descendant of Shem is Abraham. 
So now, beginning in chapter 12 of Genesis, not only is the line being uh, being followed, but now a particular family is being focused on, that of Abraham and his son then Isaac and his son Jacob. Jacob's name was changed by God to Israel. Israel, Jacob has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the Bible begins to focus on one of those 12 sons, the 11th of the 12, Joseph, who was the first of two sons by Jacob's favorite wife. And so he favors Joseph. Now, when I say Jacob's favorite wife, that should trigger you right away that we've got a problem. Okay? And as you read through the first part of your Bible, you'll see that over and over again, that you've got many women, many wives in violation of God's uh, standard, and that creates all kinds of problems. But Joseph is favored, and in the story of Joseph, top of page 5, you find Joseph winding up in Egypt because his brothers, who are jealous, sell him into slavery. And through God's providence, he winds up in a prominent position in Egypt. Many years later, his brothers have to come to him, of all people, for food in the midst of a famine. And his family, including his father Jacob, move to Egypt, and they're there for 430 years. And over 430 years, they become a great nation. They're ultimately then, uh, they ultimately leave because they are oppressed. And one of the reasons they're oppressed is because a pharaoh who knew not Joseph, the Bible says, uh, is very concerned about their numbers and about uh, the, the potential problem that they could be for him. And so they are oppressed. And God, with a mighty hand, through the deliverer Moses, uh, brings them out of Egypt. So you've got really in all of this, You've got the story of the life and times of the people through whom the seed would come. As you read through your Old Testament, that's what you've got. The story of the life and times of the people through whom this promised seed is going to come. And further, those people's lives prove the need for that seed. So let me say that again. In the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, after Genesis 12, focused in on Abraham now and his descendants, uh, the progeny through whom the Messiah, the promised one, is going to come. In that, you have the story of the life and times of the people through whom the promised seed is going to come. And as you read, you see in their lives the very need for that one to come because as you look at their lives they're a wreck I mean I just said you know Jacob Jacob has a favorite wife and you find this kind of thing going on over and over again they're a wreck aren't they okay but they're the the people you're reading about they're the people (laughs) through whom the answer is going to come and their messed up lives point to the need for the answer So as you read through the first part of your Bible, you ought to read it that way. These are the chosen people. And they're chosen, as you guys have maybe gotten the idea by now, because I keep pounding it, not because there's anything special about them. They're a wreck. Like we're a wreck. Like America's a wreck. But God in His grace chose them as the vehicle through whom the answer would come, and their messed up lives show the need for that very answer. So page five, you have Joseph 
uh, in Egypt. They're there for 430 years. Number two on page five, Moses leads them out in the, the Exodus. Early on in the sojourn, God gives them his law and designs for the tabernacle. They wander for 40 years having disobeyed God. God's command to go in and take the uh, and take the land that he had promised to, to Abraham. And then number five, you see Joshua conquered the land. And in this wilderness wandering for 40 years, what should have been a three days journey, a three days journey from a town called Kadesh Barnea to the Jordan River, it should have been a three days journey, it ended up taking 40 years. That th- have you ever thought about it that way? This thing should have been over within a week. And it took 40 years. The reason it took 40 years is because, as we saw, they disobeyed. Instead of just going in and doing what God said to do, they sent in spies. The spies meet Rahab, the prostitute, who expresses belief. And she is saved from the calamity that overcomes her city of of Jericho. They cross the Jordan triumphantly, but they that cross the Jordan are include only two of the adults who 40 years earlier left Egypt, Joshua and Caleb, only two. All the rest died. So 1.2 million adults died during that 40-year period. They established memorials on one side of the Jordan in the midst of the Jordan. They engage in circumcision because the men had not been circumcised in obedience to the law, which shows the depths to which they had, had fallen. And they celebrate Passover. They conquer Jericho. They conquer Ai, this small town. But they were first routed in Ai because of their pride and failure to obey God. But they routed Ai. And then in the book of Joshua, you have the conquests. And they lost a total of 36 men in all of these campaigns. All 36 were lost in that one battle with that one little town, Ai. And in the rest of them, they they lost nobody. So they're victorious, except they failed to do as God instructed and to take all of the cities and to drive out all of the inhabitants. They failed to do that. And having failed to do that, that brings us to number six on page five, which is the judges maintained the land. The judges maintained the land. The period of the judges... uh, is this. There are 21 chapters in the book called Judges. So the seventh book of your Bible, Judges, has these 21 chapters. And if you read those 21 chapters, you will find God's chosen people oppressed regularly by inhabitants of the promised land. So these were people primarily who were already there that they were supposed to take and defeat. They had a number of conquests as recorded in the book of Joshua but they failed to conquer all of the cities and remove the drive the people out and so as you read through those 21 chapters of judges what you find is a cycle of uh, deliverance by God from the hand of one of these cities and their city-state kings and then uh, followed by a, another period of instability and then God graciously delivers them and you see this over and over again And four times you have the refrain, 
in the book of Judges, four times, this is the refrain. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Four times. So as you read through that thing, it's supposed to be really dark. In fact, the book of Judges, that seventh book of your Bible, is has been called the Dark Ages of the Old Testament. It was a period of about 300 years. And during that 300-year period, uh, 12 judges uh, ruled, but they ruled this kind of chaos. They had no king. They were just people who would represent God, do the best they could, or some of them, in fact, many of them were evil themselves. And because they had left in place these cities that they were supposed to conquer and drive out, the book of Judges records that it resulted in intermarriage with pagan uh, women, between pagan Israelite men to pagan women and Israelite women to pagan men. And it also led to spiritual defection. In Judges chapter 3, you read of, you read of both of those. The intermarriage problem and defecting spiritually from the true and, and living God. One answer to that is, um, and I, want, I got to say this without sounding, um, without getting shot <laughs> by the women. But you're answering, you're asking the question because she's female, right? Yes. Okay. So I, I just want to make clear: the question came from Eula, and I'm going to put Eula's email address on the board so that you can give all commentary to her on this. Okay. But she's saying your question is: what's a woman doing in there? As one of the judges. And one answer to that is, it's actually an illustration of how dark the period was. <laughs> no, that you don't have men to step up. That you don't have men to do what the men were supposed to be doing. So you find you find a woman leading in Deborah. And she, and, and by the way now, to try to redeem myself and protect myself, again... Eula's email address is. <laughs> but Deborah was actually very capable. So you see in that that you don't have, uh, it's, not, it's not inability. That when the Bible talks about roles for men and women, it's not because women are inferior. And you see women throughout the Bible who prove that to be the case. And those of us who are married, as I always say, know that's the case. As, as well, from from experience. So, good question. Good question. <laughs> Jury's out on the answer. <laughs> so, you have God's chosen people living in what is partially a pagan land, and they are influenced by that. Now, as you move forward in your Bible, you're going to find that theme regularly. How do God's people live as foreigners in a world that is anti-God. And you see that in the book of Judges. You see that throughout the Bible with God calling his people to be holy. 
Holy means separate, distinct, different. And the battle goes on over and over and over again in the Bible. You come to the New Testament in the night before Jesus is crucified. And in John 17, he prays. And Jesus prays uh, a long prayer and a beautiful prayer to the Father for his first immediate followers, the apostles. But then by extension, you and me, he prays for those who will come to him through their ministry. And so he's praying for us the night before he dies, before we're ever born. But in that, he says, they are in the world. But just as I am not of the world, neither are they of the world. And that's where we then get that ditty that many of us have heard, that Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. But as you read through the Bible, you find how difficult that is. As you're in it, it's very easy to become of it. And you see how many times God's people are supposed to be holy and supposed to be apart from in terms of their values and allegiances and affections. But because they are in it, they become affected by it and they become uh, and they become sometimes even identical to it. So as you read through that, I'm just telling you that that's a theme that you see early on and watch for those kinds of themes as you go through the Bible. So then you come to the eighth book of your Bible, and that's the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth starts this way. Remember I said there are 21 chapters in Judges, and that four times in the book of Judges you have that phrase, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Well, one of those four is the very last verse. The very last verse of the book of Judges, chapter 21 and verse 25, says that. Says what I just said. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And then you come to the eighth book. You just turn the page, and you've got Ruth chapter 1. Now this first line is really important to set the book of Ruth in context. Because it says this, in the days when the judges ruled. So immediately you're supposed to go, well, this is going to be bad. The first line is supposed to get your mind to say, "Uh uh-oh, there's trouble coming. Because why? I just read 21 chapters of Judges. And I know how ugly it was. And I know that this was the dark ages of the Old Testament. And so now you've got this eighth book, the book of Ruth, and the setting is given in the very first line, in the days when the judges ruled. So everything that's now going to transpire over the next four chapters is all happening in that context, in the dark days when the judges ruled. And when that was the case, first verse, there was a famine in the land. Now, God gave famines, to the land, sometimes as judgment upon the people. And in all likelihood, that's probably what was happening here. Remember I said that they commingled with the pagans and there was spiritual defection to the pagan gods. One of those gods was Baal. And Baal's <clears throat> wife was a pagan goddess named Ashtaroth. And when Baal and Ashtaroth would have sexual relations with each other, that was supposed to result in fertility on the earth. 
So uh, on the land, in the land. So God bringing a famine was in all likelihood. God saying, Baal doesn't control the land's fertility. I do. And there's this famine in the days when the judges ruled, when they were when they were going after these these foreign gods and intermarrying. And Ruth says, verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Well, if you were reading, just reading from Genesis now to this eighth book, and you were to come upon that line, that they decided to leave Bethlehem in the promised land to go to Moab, you should be saying to yourself, this is not going to end well. Also, now why? Why would you, why would you be saying that, they, uh, that Moab might be a problem? Well, one, the inhabitants of Moab were excluded from the congregation of the Lord. Deuteronomy, if you care to jot it down, Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23. Now, why was now why was that the case? Well, you go back a little bit further. That's Deuteronomy 23. And the inhabitants of Moab are excluded. But that goes all the way back to how Moab began. And that would take you back to the first book of the Bible. And Genesis 19. Genesis 19, verses 30 to 38. And there you read about uh, Lot's two daughters... And their despair about any future after the destruction of Sodom, the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, and just stay with me on this. This is what the Bible says. It's really a sordid tale. But they conspire, uh, these two daughters do, to get their father drunk. And he has sexual relations then with them. <coughs> and the fruits of that incest were two sons named Moab. And Ami. And they were the founders of the Moabites and the Ammonites. So now, as you go forward and you read about the Moabites and the Ammonites, this is how it all starts. Going back to that. So you get to Ruth and you say, Elimelech, the father of this clan, decides that the answer to a famine is to go to Moab. You're thinking to yourself, this is not going to end well. And you would be thinking, right, because that's indeed the case. In fact, the Moabites and the Ammonites were people, as you read forward, they were people who would often war against Israel, war against God's people. So Elimelech is making what is undoubtedly an unwise choice early on in Ruth chapter 1. So in the days when the judges ruled, when things were really lousy, there was a famine in the land. In all likelihood, God's judgment on, on the people. A man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there. So what's going to happen? You know, I've read it, you've read it. So, but even before you read it, if it was the first time you read that, if you were reading through just from Genesis starting there, now you come to the eighth book, you're thinking to yourself, 
I'm waiting for the shoe to drop. And then in the next verse, verse 3, you see the shoe drops. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Good work, Elimelech. Getting them to this pagan place in Moab and then kicking the bucket. Okay, Elimelech's gone. She's left with her two sons. They married Moabite women. That's not good either. So they marry Moabite women, one named Orpah, but the other named Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion died. So now we've got Naomi, we've got Orpah, we've got Ruth, and they're in Moab, and they've got no men. Now, if you're a woman at that time, uh, and you've got no man, you've got nothing. That's the way it was. Uh, you've got no social security system. Your man is your social security system. And if you don't have him, you don't have anything. So these women now are left without any means of income. What are they going to do? And Naomi says, let's go back. Good, Good idea. Let's go back to Bethlehem. And Ruth goes with her. Orpah does not. But Ruth... Now, Ruth is a Moabite. She's a pagan. But as you read about her, you find God's grace in her life, despite the fact that she's this pagan. So what does that tell you? How, why, is this because Ruth was great? No. Because <laughs> God was great. God was good to Ruth. And God calls yet another pagan, like Abraham, to himself. And she follows Naomi to go back to Naomi's hometown of, of Bethlehem. And in chapter 2, in chapter 2, here's what the Bible says. Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, her now deceased husband, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out into her field and began to glean behind the harvesters. Now let me stop there. So what is that all about? So you got the daughter-in-law <coughs> saying to the mother-in-law, I'll go get us some food. And so I'm going to go into the field, and anybody who will let me, I will, I will glean. Uses the word glean. Now where does that come from? Well, if you had read through the law of Moses, you would find that the Israelites, like Boaz, had been commanded as to how they were to harvest their fields. And as the welfare system of Israel, they were to harvest their fields so that they left the corners. They didn't they didn't cut the they, they cut the corners. So that they left those unharvested so that those corners could be gleaned by those who needed food. And the gleaners could also walk behind the harvesters and pick up anything they left behind. So when she says to Naomi, let me go and do this, that's what she's referring to. It's the, the custom, the law of gleaning. And that's why we actually we have an organization called, it gives food to people. It's called gleaners. You know, you know, God is entitled to some royalties on some of this stuff, okay? I mean, I, I brought up Blue Cross and Blue Shield the other day. You know, on the Moses pole and the serpent on the pole, right? So blue shield. And so many, many of these things have 
biblical references. And that's that's what this is. So she goes and does that. And in the middle of verse 3, it says, As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now that phrase, as it turned out, is one of a handful of favorites in all the Bible. I mean, there's another one in, in a famous one in Esther 4.14, where Esther's told, perhaps you have come to the kingdom, if you remember the phrase, for such a time as this. That's a great phrase. For such a time as this. But this one in Ruth 2.3, as it turned out, she's gleaning in the field of a guy from the clan of Elimelech named Boaz. And I'm here to tell you, and as the story will make clear, the as it turned out was not as luck would have it. So as you read through the Bible, you never have a as luck would have it. Wow! Or just a chance coincidence. None of that happens. As it turned out, is God providentially guiding this entire story. Every piece of it. Now, stop. Next year, we will get to our section on how to apply the Bible. But I just have these stops as we go through the story to help you start to think about, how do I apply that to me? I mean, I'm reading in the book of Ruth. You know, and I read that Moab is a pagan place. And so now I read Elimelech going to Moab. So I'm thinking, well, that was a dumb move. Yeah, it turned out to be pretty dumb because now they're all, now what? They all have to come back. But God's still active in all of this because there's this girl named Ruth who somehow cares about all this. She's a Moabite. Why does she care about it? Because God in his grace has called her. And so she has an affinity with Naomi and with Naomi's people. And she goes back and then they need food. And so she's going to go and find it for her elderly mother-in-law and for herself. And as it turned out, in this whole story, she winds up meeting a guy named Boaz who is of the clan of Elimelech. Now, this of the clan of Elimelech thing becomes important as as well. Because, here's what the story goes on to say, chapter 2, verse 19. She comes in contact with, with Boaz. And when she comes back home, verse 19 says, her mother-in-law, Naomi, asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. And then Naomi said to her, The Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She added, That man is our close relative. And he is one of the guardian redeemers. But as luck would have it, she winds up meeting this guy who's one of our close relatives and he can serve as one of our she says guardian redeemers sometimes you'll hear that called our kinsman redeemer and what is that that goes back to the law and the law was remember I said hey if you're a woman without a man you're in well God made provision for that to say the next of kin, the next male relative, is to marry the uh, widow, to to take care of her, if there is one. And Naomi says, look at this, there is one. This guy, Boaz. Well, 
but then there's the whole issue of that's what the that's what the law says. That's God's provision to to take care. But then there's whether or not the closest of kin is actually going to obey the law. Is actually going to step up and do this. So is Boaz gonna is Boaz gonna do this? And in chapter three and verse twelve. Although, he says to Ruth, it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who's more closely related than I, he says to Ruth. Okay, a fly in the ointment. Because remember, Boaz is a man of some stature. It's already been, that's already been stated. So, and apparently he's a catch for a number of reasons. But, and, and apparently he's, in fact, he says, I'm willing to comply. But there's someone more closely related than I who gets first dibs, who gets first right of refusal. And he says this in verse 13, stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem her. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. And then he says to her, lie here until morning. And then you have in chapter 4, Boaz finding this closer relative, telling him what needs to be done, and then this relative refusing. And they make they consummate the deal that this other relative is not going to do what he's in line to do, so that now Boaz is next in line. And they consummate the deal with a custom that they used in that, those days to... Uh, shake sandals or exchange a sandal. And in fact, in chapter 4 and verse 8, it says, so the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. That is, buy the estate. That includes the people that you're to take care of, Naomi and Ruth. And he removed his sandals. And then Boaz announces all of this to, to the people. So that's how this short four-chapter story goes. And then you come to the end of the story. And Ruth and Boaz get married. They have a son named Obed. And Obed becomes important because he ends up being the grandfather of King David to come. So Ruth, this Moabite, winds up being the great-grandmother of David. And the book ends with these five verses. This then is the family line. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. And it just ends there. Jesse, the father of David, because the next book is 1 Samuel. And now you're set up for the entrance of David. <clears throat> and how did God bring about David through through all of this? Now, um, so that's, that's the story. That's the purpose of the story is to bring David into the picture. But there's this other curious thing in the book of Ruth that I wanted to point out in chapter 4. That when Ruth and Boaz get married and they announce that they're having a child, this is what chapter 4 and verse 12 says. The people were thrilled and they say, 
through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, Boaz, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. That's what it says in chapter 4 and verse 12. So, Tamar bore Perez to Judah. And they get mentioned in Ruth chapter 4. Now, who cares about Tamar and Judah and Perez? Well, obviously I do because I keep mentioning it. And apparently God does, because more importantly, because he mentioned it. But what's the deal with that? Well, who is Judah? Well, remember who Judah is. He's one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And he is the one of the 12 sons of Jacob through whose line is going to come the Messiah. So you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but the particular son of the 12 through whom the Messiah is going to come is, is Judah. Genesis 49.10, that the scepter will not depart from the line of Judah. The, the ruler, the king, is going to come through Judah said Jacob, prophesying on his on his son. So he's going to come through Judah. That's who Judah is. And Tamar bore a son to Judah. This guy named Perez. But why does, why does that matter? Well, let me remind you of the history. If you were reading the first seven books, before you get to this eighth book, you would have come across Judah, you would have come across Tamar, and you would have come across Perez in Genesis 38. Genesis chapter 38. And the story is this, that Judah had three sons by a Canaanite wife, by a pagan wife. Now, okay, Judah's the chosen son through whom the lion of the tribe of Judah is going to come. But Judah is another wreck. And Judah has three sons by his Canaanite wife. And his oldest son married this woman, Tamar. And Tamar's also a, a pagan Canaanite. So like father, like son, this oldest son marries a, a Canaanite uh, woman named Tamar. And this son was wicked and God killed him. Genesis 38, verse 7. So Judah has a second son. And remember this whole next of kin takes care of the widow? So that's what happens. So Tamar, this pagan, is married to the second son who has the responsibility of raising up a son for his dead brother through this kinsman-redeemer law. But he didn't want to. I mean, he did, but he didn't want to. Now, he wants to have sexual relations with Tamar, but he doesn't want to have a child by Tamar. And so he takes action to make sure that doesn't happen in his wickedness. And God was displeased, and God kills him. Well, there's the third son, but Judah does not give the third son to Tamar. And so it looks like the line of Judah is going to end. But then after Judah himself becomes a widower, Tamar poses as a prostitute, seduces him, and she conceives twins. And one of those twins is this guy Perez. Now, 
you read that sordid story, and you go, wow, how refreshing is that to read it? <laughs> right? You just read your Bible, man, and this is all this refreshing stuff. So let me just stop for a moment. <coughs> so why is it that we, why is it that I, I'll just tell you my own practice, but why is it that we censor what we watch and what we read? Um, I mean, if the Bible's got all this graphic stuff in it, then apparently there's nothing wrong with just feeding your mind with this kind of stuff, right? Well, I'm asking. I'm asking you to think about that. If somebody asks you, well, why, why shouldn't I read it in a novel or why shouldn't I watch it on TV? I mean, you read through the Bible, man, and you're just blushing at some of the stuff that happens there. So, anybody got an answer to that? Okay. So, so what do you do with that? Well, remember, context determines meaning. If you if you remember that, I've repeated that phrase to my daughters a thousand times in their upbringing. Context determines meaning. So, Could you say that louder? That's a little loud. No. Context, what? Context determines meaning. Yeah. Context determines meaning. So the meaning of a statement, the meaning of an act, the meaning of anything is determined by the context in which it's said or in which it happens. The context in which the Bible records these things condemns those things. So it records them and it's realistic about them. So we should not be people who are prudish in the sense that we can't stand to live in the real world and hear anything bad or sordid that happens. The Bible records that. But the Bible puts it in a holy context. God is against that. Whereas your TV or your novel glorifies it. God doesn't glorify it. God, God condemns it. But here's the other thing. God in his grace redeems even the ugliest of stuff. And that should be a lesson for us as well. Guys and gals... <coughs> We live in a very sordid and ugly world. Very. And those of us who have been, have lived in protected homes, thank God for that. But read your Bible. And understand that your Bible is accurate when it talks about sin. And sin is the world. And our culture and the degeneration of our culture is not an exception to the rule. The Victorian era was an exception to the rule. The, the rule is that the world acts this way. And that's the world in which we live. But God places in its proper context. And he helps us to interpret whether things are good or bad, whether things are to be emulated or not, whether things are to be glorified or not. And your novelist and your TV producer, all they want to do is give you gratuitous violence and sex so that they can sell the books and, and the commercials. So you read you read all that sordid stuff. And at the end of Ruth, God makes a point of having Tamar, the Tamar Perez Judah episode mentioned at the end. And Tamar gets a starring role. You know, the one who disguised herself and seduced her uh, father-in-law 
And you go to Matthew, you go to the New Testament, Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. And here's what the Bible says. The New Testament. After you read through all that stuff, you come to your New Testament, it says this is the genealogy, very first verse of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you see how Matthew does this? He's reminding you of the line. This one, Jesus, has come through the line of Judah. He's the son of David. He goes all the way back to the promises of Abraham. And then he gives the genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Notice, he just says Judah, and then there's the brothers. Why Judah? Because Judah had been picked out. This one is going to come through the line of Judah. So it's Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, you just got to go, wow. Because he could have just said, he's the father of Perez. Because then it's going to say Perez is the father. It's going through Perez, but no. You got this line to remind you that Tamar was a player here. This very Tamar who did what is recorded in Genesis 38. And then back to Perez. He's the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. This is exactly the genealogy you have at the end of Ruth. Exact same names. The father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab? Rahab? How does she get in there? But remember Rahab. And you remember she was a prostitute. And you remember the story of the spies. And you remember that God somehow reaches down and causes her to believe that the God of Israel is the true and living God. Rahab gets mentioned. Boaz is the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth the pagan. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of King David. you got three women in there who are like women of ill repute. They're pagans. you got Tamar. you got Rahab. And then you got Ruth, who's not a woman of ill repute. She had good character, but she was a pagan. And she would have remained a pagan had God not graciously called her. But then just one more, it goes on. David was the father of Solomon. And then it just says whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So Bathsheba is not named. But she's alluded to. And in the storyline of the coming of the Messiah, Matthew reminds us of King David's sin with the wife of Uriah. Now, when you read Matthew, you said, you know, you decided for your New Year's resolution in 2015, I'm going to start in the New Testament. And when you got to Nashon and Salmon, you go, all right, I give up. <laughs> but you see, all those people are in there because they're all important. Because they're all part of the story. And part of the storyline is 
that God redeems people from everywhere. God redeems people from everywhere and every kind of situation. Now, in ministry, in serving the Lord, you and I got to remember that. Because if you don't, you will, I will. Believe me, I've been there. You're tempted to go, this is hopeless. I put so much time into this person. This person is so far gone. This person has no clue what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about the Bible. And frankly, I don't want those kind of people around. Let's be honest. That's the kind of attitude we can have. Those people are icky. You know, those people. And as you read through the Bible, God redeems all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. Really nasty stuff. Really nasty backgrounds. And even there are times where the people who are redeemed fall still because of the because of the clutches of sin and the allure of the world and the power of the sinful nature still fall into sin. Thanks be to God, they can repair to the blood of Jesus. If we confess our sin, He is what? Faithful and just. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And David does that, doesn't he? You go, how does a man after God's own heart do the stuff he did? So, Reading the Bible will be an answer, an antidote to us looking down on people and us cordoning off people that we can't or won't minister to. So just reading that, guys, ought to change that for us so that our church and we as God's people in his church say there's nobody who's off limits to us. And if, not if, when, we start Christnet here. Some of you know what I'm talking about, but that's one of our goals, is one of our mercy ministries, is in addition to having a food pantry, is to have a place where homeless people can come for a week and stay. So what do you think about that, Sharon? <laughs> Sharon makes this face. <laughs> So I'm putting Sharon in charge of that ministry. Okay. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. So as you do that, I'm sorry, but if you're going to make the face in the second row, okay. I'm straightening up. But okay. But that's your, you know, it's like, really? Those, those guys are coming in here? But, you know, God's given us a facility. God's given us the ability to show the love of Christ to people like Christ did. So that's going to be a challenge for some of us, isn't it? To come out of our comfort zone to say, so now i got to mingle with those guys. And if that's all new to you, in God's providence, it's not new to me because of my family. So when I talk about the other side of the tracks, I come from the other side of the tracks, okay? So I know about the other side of the tracks. But if you've never been on the other side of the tracks and you don't haven't mingled with people on the other side of the tracks, then Christnet will be good for you because you'll see what that's like. 
And you'll see how hard and how difficult sin has made it for people. And yet we'll have an opportunity to be a ray of light into their lives. So that's a program where churches in the cold months take a week. And they minister to people for that for that week. Okay? But God redeems people of all types from all kinds of all kinds of situations. Now, David does what he does. And David hides it. David has Uriah killed. Uriah gets mentioned. You know? And this is on this is on everything God does is on purpose. In the genealogy, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So you got them both there, an allusion to Bathsheba and a direct mention of Uriah who is killed through the action of David. So the Bible doesn't hide any of that. You know, you would think this would be the time to just extol the virtues of David. And yet right here in the genealogy of the Christ, the Messiah, the Chosen One, we're reminded that David was an adulterer and a murderer. And David hides it until he is confronted by the prophet Nathan. And then he is convicted. And in Psalm 51, David confesses. And I want to point out to you what he says because it will lead us to the last thing on page 5. And then when we get together next time, we'll be off page 5. How cool will that be? So there's Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is David's confession and repentance. And if you have that, you see at the top of Psalm 51, it says, A psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David, had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. And every time I read that, I point out all the personal pronouns. This is all about me and my. It's not about what anybody else did. He is truly repentant. He's coming clean. This is on me. He's owning this. And then in verse 4, Against you, God, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and you're justified when you judge. Let me stop there. He sinned against how many people? (laughs) And yet in verse 4, you only? And and what, what he's saying there is, Despite the fact that I sinned against Bathsheba and against Uriah and against the whole nation, ultimately the most important one that I've sinned against is God. And then in verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And I want you to, the reason I read this much is because I want you to see these next two verses. Verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now what's that? Take your Holy Spirit from me. Because you're saying, I thought 
that once I have a relationship with Jesus, that that's forever, eternal. And here's David saying, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So what is that about? Well, it's not about David not being a child of God any longer. It's not about that. It's not about David losing his salvation because he sinned. It's not about that. Here's what it's about. At the bottom of page 5, you find that Israel is given its first three kings. And those first three kings are Saul and David and Solomon. And as you read in 1 Samuel, after Ruth, you find that those kings were anointed by Samuel, the priest. And they're anointed with oil that symbolizes the Holy Spirit, empowering this person to lead the nation. So that is what the Holy Spirit did. It's called... It's called the theocratic anointing. The anointing of the Holy Spirit for the king to lead the theocracy, to lead God's nation. The theocratic anointing. And in Psalm 51, what David is asking the Lord to do is, Lord, don't remove my kingship. I'm asking you not to do it. I'm asking you not to remove the theocratic anointing that I received from Samuel from me. It's not lose my salvation. But he does say in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. It's not restore my salvation and it's not I'm going to lose my salvation. What he may well lose is his place of leadership. That's what he's asking God to maintain in his mercy. But restore to me the joy of my salvation. All right. We have finished page five. And... um, In fact, if you guys don't mind, we'll take, we're one minute over, but on page six, let's just fill in what's there, and then we'll uh, pick up on page seven in two weeks. So this concludes the second 2,000 years, part one, and at the top there, you have three major persons. On the left, at the top, you've got Abraham in 2000 BC, and the major event is, you can just put the word move, because... That was his move from Ur of the Chaldees to the land that God would show him. So Abraham and and the move, Moses in the middle there, 1500 B.C., and the Exodus. And then on the right, you have David, and the event is the monarchy, or you can just put the kingdom. And then that box has seven events. Those seven events are on page five, but I'll just list them for you. The first one is Joseph and Egypt. Number one is Joseph and Egypt. Number two is the Exodus. Number three is the law. So you got Joseph and Egypt, Exodus, law. Number four is wilderness or the wandering. Number five is the conquest. Six is the judges. And seven is the monarchy. So Joseph and Egypt... The Exodus is number two. Number three is the law. Number four, the wilderness. Number five, the conquest. Number six, judges. Number seven, the monarchy. And then the bottom right, you see that box, that map, one through seven, showing you the different areas in which these things took place. All right, we'll pick up on page seven in two weeks. Lord willing.